Today, uh, Drew read um, Romans 2, and the first part of Romans 2, and we'll have two sermons from verses 17 through 29. Uh, now, we transition from this conversation in uh, 12 through 16 about uh, the Gentiles and the relationship to the law to a different set of people. Now, we know that uh, we transition here because we see this but at the beginning of the verse. It says, but you. Uh, so this makes an automatic comparison between the Gentiles who have the law, the Gentile who has the law in his heart, and the Jew who not only has the law in his heart, but has the law exposed to him every day of his life in complete or mostly complete freedom of worship. So we have this Gentile that Morgan talked about last week who did the law just because he was created in the image of God. He did the law because the law is on the heart of every mankind. But now we're going back to this Jewish person who does the law not only because it's on his heart, but because he knows the law. He's been given the law. It's in his face. He has it to look at. It's been taught to him since birth. And what we find is that Paul is clarifying that both are equally condemned because they are both under the sin of Adam. Much like Morgan discussed last week that both will have the secrets of their heart, hearts judged in Christ Jesus. The law condemns both. Now I want to make something very clear for you before we move on in these next two sermons. It's important for today and next week, but it's important in general. Because I will often say things because of, maybe flippantly, maybe lazily, but because of the gospel, I will often say things that make it look like I take a negative view of the law of God. Now, if you were here for our Exodus series, I hope that you don't believe that. But uh, I never intend for you to think that I have a negative view of the law of God. I never intend for you to think anything less than this, and that is, the law of God is good. The law of God is good. It was instituted by God himself as a means of giving his people direction in their pursuit of holiness. The law of God is good. The problem with the law of God is not that it isn't good. The problem with the law of God is that it isn't perfect. It isn't perfect. But the perfect, Jesus, fulfilled what the law missed which was God's perfect plan anyway from the foundation of the world. Jesus wasn't, if, you didn't, if you've been here more than one week, Jesus wasn't the rewrite of the law of God. He was always the plan as the fulfillment of the law of God. It wasn't like God saw the law and he's like, boy, I really, I really messed up in this. I really should have thought about this sin that they would have done. I really should have thought about how they would have made more laws for themselves. No, it wasn't that. It was that God fulfilled the, God created this law to give his people a, a direction so that as they're living by faith, they know that they're living in the will of the Lord. And then he brought Jesus to say, this was my plan to make you right with me all along. The problem with the law is not that it isn't good, it's that it isn't perfect. The law is good. And the law, and, and just to prove this to you today, and I think we've sort of done this before, but um, 
it's okay to repeat things as long as we don't get too redundant. Um, and even sometimes I do get too redundant and you just have to suck it up. But the law is good and the law offered the people of that time and the people of our time several good things. And if you uh, like these kind of things, you can take notes on these. They're not be up here, but I will let you know them. I'll, I will inform them to you right now so you can take notes if you like these kind of things. What the law did, I have five things for you. The law is good because it revealed the character and attributes of God. Why the law is good? It reveals the character and attributes of God. The law shows simple humans what God is like. Second thing, the law reveals the sinfulness of mankind. If it weren't for the law, we would not understand and know our need for a Savior and would die without one condemned still. The law opens man's heart to his need for a Savior and his need for redemption. The law is the proving ground of our need for a Savior. The law is a deflector of pride. The law is a deflector of pride. If we recognize through examination of the law that we are inept, then our only hope will be pointed to Christ. The law points us to Christ because we cannot fulfill it. And we understand at that point when we cannot fulfill the whole law and it's necessary to fulfill the whole law that we need help. But not only help, we need someone to do it for us. The law is a deflector of pride. The law applies limited restraint to the rest of society. It applies limited restraint to the rest of society. The law's rules are what almost are the law the book the law of god's are almost what uh, the law of god is what almost all of the laws of the land are marked or made after it applies limited restraint to the rest of society and the law is the moral compass to doing the will of god the law as a creation of god is a learning tool and a litmus test for those who are in Christ. So the law is good. But the problem is that the law isn't perfect. And that is why Jesus is here. That is why Jesus existed. That is why Jesus came to redeem his people. And that setup brings us to the meat of our text today. And that is simply this. The religious person, the atheist, or the nothingist, all are condemned the same. But often only two of those people recognize it, while the other doesn't. Paul said, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth. Now we're looking at this Religious person with a wealth of spiritual understanding. A wealth of freedom to express himself religiously. And Paul points out several aspects of this person that proves that he is in the same boat as the rest of the world. Even if he doesn't realize it. I want to look at two of those today and we'll look at the rest next, next week. The reason the Jews... The religious person was condemned by the law is because they depended far too heavily on being a Jew and the privilege that came with that. So two reasons today out of the many that we'll look at that um, two reasons that 
the religious person is condemned also. The first is a heavy dependence on privilege. A heavy dependence on privilege. This is the first reason that the Jewish person, the religious person, the person who has a wealth of God will be judged by the law. They grew up in a privileged and abundant religious nation. Now sure there wasn't always financial abundance and complete religious freedom, but the Lord relates that to their lack of following Him. They had the opportunities, they had the wealth of knowledge, they had the availability of God. If they did not seek it, it was their own fault. But from a a spiritual standpoint, there was no reason for this nation to ever lack from the knowledge and presence of God. Do Do you see parallels? Are you starting to get the parallels? There was no reason for this nation... Even though America and the Jewish nation were completely different, that it was not, they're not established in the same way. America is not God's nation. That's not how it works. Trump is not God's president. That's not how it works. He was the person that God put into office, just like Obama, just like the rest of them. That's not how it works. America is not the new Israel. That's not how it works. But America has been blessed by God with freedoms that are abundant. Open religious systems to be able to worship God freely. I'm I'm just making these parallels painfully obvious, so you need to get them. From a spiritual standpoint, this nation never had a reason to abandon God. Never had a reason to not know of faith. Yet instead of trusting in God by faith and through the power of the Spirit, they leaned into the promise of Abraham. They leaned into their heritage and it gave them a false sense of security that they were protected regardless of what they did or or how far they had gotten from God. So what were their privileges that they relied upon? What were their privileges that they relied upon? First, they had received the law of God. Could that be said about any other nation? No other nation could have said that they received the law of God. Of God, And we already discussed the benefits of the law. They were sitting under all of these benefits under the law of God. And what we know is that the law pointed them to saving faith. Pointed them to saving faith by showing a complete dependence on God. So they had the law of God. This was a privilege that they leaned into. A second privilege that they leaned into is at the end of verse 17, it says, they boast in God. A second privilege, they received the special revelation of God. Could it be said about any other nation that they had received the special revelation of God? No, it could not. They and only they knew God in the most personal way and could reach and interact with Him on a level that no other nation could claim. There is a third way that they were privileged. They knew the will of the Lord. As I mentioned a minute ago when I was describing one of the key factors and the the joys of having the law of God, it is being able to distinguish and understand the will of the Lord. And because they had the law of God, they knew the will of the Lord. They knew that the law pointed to His purposes and His plans and His will for people. This was a privilege of being a part of the nation of God. There was a fourth that our verses mentioned, and that is they approved the law of God. They, were, they not only had the law, they were the only ones to have the law of God. 
They knew the will of the Lord because of this law, but they also confirmed that the law was necessary for obeying and glorifying God. These people were privileged beyond our wildest imagination. These people grew up in great spiritual privilege. And that is what they were trusting in for their faith. It isn't far off from where we stand today, friends. Where we trust in the things of God instead of God himself. Today, Christians are professing Christians everywhere are claiming as they're claiming privileges as proofs of their salvation as opposed to Christ himself. The privilege of being a charter member of a church. I was there when it began, some people might say. We claim that our church genealogy makes us spiritual people. But oftentimes what we find out is, and this is not always the case, and I don't want to overgeneralize because there are some saints that were charter members. There are people here that were charter partners of our church that are genuine, godly people. But oftentimes what we find is those charter members hold on to their, just like the Jewish people, their Abrahamic descendants. Those charter members hold on to their charter membership. I was here when it began. When their spiritual life is a dim shadow of what they were like. Back in the day. We have the privilege of the revelation of God through the Holy Scriptures. And yet we have to dust the cover off of our Bibles when we read them. Or we have to update the Bible app every time we use it. Our churches in this country are full of people who are redeemed only if what they did years ago matters more than what was done at Calvary. And people lean into that. People lean into that. I walked the aisle. I've served at soup kitchens. I've, I've, I, they used to do this award. They've done this award at churches I've been a part of in the past, and I've seen it multiple times. I have the perfect Sunday school attendance award. I never miss. I was here when this started. I helped lay the foundation for this church. There are so many people who sit in church gatherings on Sunday morning condemned Because what they did yesterday doesn't matter more than what Christ did at Calvary. Those who have the privilege of growing up in church and having the Bible, knowing the Bible, and approving the Bible, and yet missing out on the one aspect of the Bible that assures salvation. Let me warn us and challenge us today. You will never be saved by what you did yesterday. Your prayer of salvation does not save you. It does not save you. 
You will never be saved by what you did yesterday. You will never be saved by what you know today. You will never be saved by what you approve of or disapprove of, by the stances you take or the morality that you hold. You will only ever be saved by saving faith in Jesus Christ and a proof through sanctification in the power of the Holy Spirit. Saved only by Jesus Christ, but then the proving ground for that is sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that faith, it's, it's such a fine line, friends, because that faith is then proven by the things we mentioned above. By being a part of a church. By helping the needy. It's such a hard, it's such a difficult and fine line to walk. Which is why, friends, we can't be flippant about it. We can't be flippant about it. We must examine our lives. We must study the scriptures to make sure that our intentions are pure and our motives and our hearts are aimed at honoring God and not honoring ourselves. The people of God relied heavily on their privilege, the privilege of knowing God, the privilege to be free to worship, the privilege of being a part of a good church. When you do that without true faith, you get the next reason why they were, con- why they were condemned, and that was because of an abandonment of spiritual responsibilities. An abandonment of spiritual responsibilities. Look at verse 19. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Paul here is reminding the Jews of their spiritual responsibilities, and in doing so, he is also pointing out uh, how they have failed in those responsibilities. What I want to do is I want to see how the Jewish people failed in those responsibilities, and I want to use that to sort of as a charge for our church today. The first two are found in verse 19. Paul says, you are meant to be a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness. This is so simple, friends. They had eyes to see and they knew the direction to go. They were to be the beacons of light unto the world, but that did not happen. Instead, they became a closed-off commune who, instead of spreading the light of God, taunted the surrounding nations with it. They had become a holy huddle and were content in selfishly holding the law of God to themselves. May I challenge you today in this church, if you are content with letting your spiritual life be just about vintage, and that is all, then you are missing the point. If you are convinced that your only mission is to have families and raise up families and then to enjoy this together, what we have, this special thing that we have going together, if you are convinced that that is the only part of the gospel that is pertinent to you, to me, then we are doing it wrong. We are to be a light to the world. 
We are to spread the light of Christ to the world. And that sometimes means putting ourselves in dangerous and uncomfortable situations. And what happened with the Jews has happened with us. Where they were to be a guide to the blind and a light for the path, they instead gouged out their eyes and made more blind people by withholding the truth. As a church, it is imperative that we do not become content with our service or our meetings or our times together because we love them so much and we cherish them and they are special to us, which they are. But we must voraciously pursue others with the gospel of God that they might know Him and have their path illuminated also. The Bible says that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And then it says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So I will challenge you today and I will challenge myself with this today. Your light as a follower of Christ will be seen. It cannot be hidden. So my question to us and as a challenge to us is, will your light be a taunt to your friends or neighbors or will it be a beacon of hope? Will you say, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, and guess what? You can have it, and you can let it shine too. Or will you be on the hill and say, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Nan, nanny, boo-boo, it's mine. Because the Bible says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So your light will either be a beacon of hope to your neighbor, or it will be a taunt to them of where they are left out. Those are the only two choices, friends. Paul was in his in his own sarcastic way was saying you're a guide to the blind you're a light to the path by pointing those things out he was also pointing out where they failed massively to be those things to the people will your light be something that you keep just out of reach and compartmentalized as a part of your second life. Don't even try to lie to me right now. And don't, don't try to say that all of us on some level have a, don't have a second life. Right? On some level our Christianity is compartmentalized from our faith everywhere else. Right? Be honest. Be truthful with yourself if you're not going to be truthful with me. On some level our Christianity is compartmentalized. We cringe or we, we, we get anxiety or we hurt at the thought of being as open about our faith now as we are anywhere else. Or anywhere else as we are now, excuse me. We compartmentalize our faith. And we say, this little light of mine, it is all mine. Or will you break down those boxes and let your friends and your neighbors in on the secret of the gospel that clears the scales of the eyes, it gives the blind sight, opens the doorway, shines the light on the path to eternity, makes the crooked way straight. There are two more mentioned here that I want to touch on, two ways that 
they were supposed to be following the Lord and obedient to the Lord and helping others and where they and often we miss. An instructor of the foolish and a teacher of children. Paul is really getting to the heart of things now. He says an instructor of the foolish. Think about who the Bible says the foolish actually are. I hesitate to do this, but who are the foolish according to the the Bible? I, I heard something, but I didn't hear it. Okay, so unbelievers, but specifically, yes, specifically the foolish people, you look in Proverbs, who's the foolish? The person who has the wisdom of the world is the foolish. The person who has the wisdom of God is wise. He's called a fool. The person who has the wisdom of God, he's wise. The person who has the wisdom of the world, he's foolish. And what happened is they were meant to, they were meant to be instructors of God to Aristotle and to Socrates, and to Nietzsche. They were to be instructors of God to the atheist. They were to be instructors of God to, uh, uh, of God to the evolutionist. And instead, what did Israel do over and over again? They syncretized their faith. They accepted and received those things as a part of their faith. Instead of putting up a wall around their faith and teaching uh, the things of God to the foolish of the world, those who thought they were wise, those who had the wisdom of the world, they syncretized those things. They made it a part of their faith. And you know what? They probably even called it redeeming things. Paul, in a sort of pithy way, says, you are the great instructor of the foolish. But what was actually happening? They spent their entire history syncretizing their faith with other religions. Instead of teaching the truth of the law of God and faith in God, they joined the law with other things and called it redeeming the times. Where they should have been truth telling, they diluted truth by taking on the religion of the foolish instead of bringing wisdom to the foolish. Having viewed themselves as arrived because of the privilege of God, they became the people who determined what was accepted, what was syncretized, what was learned, what was taught. And before you knew it, with them, and before you know it, in the church, the world has has indoctrinated and intercepted truth so much that even spiritual leaders cannot recognize the distinction between truth and the foolishness of the world. We are in that time today, friends. You have leaders, prominent leaders of prominent evangelical denominations promoting heretics on a daily basis one, probably because of their political leanings. Two, because they just don't understand or know the truth. When you syncretize the religion of foolishness with the religion of truth or with God's truth, what you have is this mashup of indistinguishable mayhem. And it sounds Christianese, it sounds good, but it's godless. This is the problem they had. And friends, if we are not careful, if we don't take a Berean stance and examine everything against the Word of God, we will do the same. And we will say, 
things like, I don't see the problem with Joel Osteen. He's just got a, pro- he's just got a positive message. I don't see the problem with this one or with that one. Right now, you want to know a big one, and I might get tomatoes on me, and if someone listens to this later, I might get kicked out of whatever we're not a part of. But I don't see the problem with Beth Moore. Beth Moore is a false teacher. And if you can't see the problem with Beth Moore, it's because you don't know how to distinguish truth from the religion of mankind. And it has nothing to do with the fact that Beth Moore is preaching and leading men in churches. That has nothing to do with that. That's just the last thing. That's just the most recent thing. It has more to do with her spiritualistic, anyway, that's a different sermon, probably not a sermon, conversation for MC or something like that. But we have, we, we have Baptist, we, and, and, and I am historically Baptist, so that's my point of view, so that's my frame of reference, so that's what I'm going to talk from. But we have these Baptists, these religious, godly leaders in the Baptist church, and they're promoting blatant false teaching. Because even they have accepted religiosity as opposed to Christ. Even they have accepted the truths of what the church has followed as opposed to Christ. The last of these spiritual abandonments is a lack of teaching the next generation. Kamala Harris wants uh, the school day to go to 6 p.m. We have co-opted teaching our children to someone else. And in some cases, given the responsibility completely Away. This is not only teaching our children in the education of the things of the world, but specifically teaching our children in the things of God. We have given it to Sunday schools. We have given it to youth directors. We have given it to uh, pastors. We have given it to other leaders, everyone but ourselves. And what has happened in the, what happened in the Jewish faith, we know definitively as we read this verse, knowing the context of the Bible, that they gave away their responsibility to teach. How do we know this? Because the next generations kept doing the same things they were doing. The next gen, the, and, and we know that they gave those things away because God promised in the Shema, if you teach these things, if you give, if you raise your children up in these things, what will happen is a generation of faith, a, break, a breaking of the curse of Adam. And here's the reason, listen, I don't know for sure 100% that every one of my children will come to faith in Jesus Christ, but here is the reason that I believe it with my whole heart. Because God is a God who changes generations when the parents decide that Jesus is more important than anything else that they could possibly teach their children. They gave away teaching their children. And guess what? They were teaching them religious things even probably. They taught them about the Seder and they taught them about the Passover and they taught them about all of these wonderful religious things. But what we find, friends, is religiosity will not save your children. And the reason they couldn't keep The command to teach their children is because they couldn't keep the first two commands of the Shema. They certainly weren't going to keep the third. What was the first? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And there was a third command that we often, often miss. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them as you sit in your house, as you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. They forgot the third command of the Shema, and it ruined generation after generation after generation. He said, you're a, you're a guide to the blind. You're a light to the world. You're a, a teacher to the foolish. You're or, or, or a corrector of the foolish. You're a teacher to your children. All while they were failing, or at least doing very poorly at all four. They let the next generation slip. Friends, if these two aren't an indictment on the, rest, on the Western church, I don't know what it is. We have an embarrassment of riches as it concerns the things of God, and yet we choose to follow the things of the foolish. We have an embarrassment of free time to spend with our families and to teach them the things of Christ. And our priorities, our football team and sports and relationships and politics and whatever you want to name. And none of those things in and of themselves are bad, obviously. All of those things can be used to the glory of the Lord. But all of them obfuscate our true responsibilities and objectives as Christians. I fear, it's one of the reasons why I don't like my children watching me watch a a Memphis football game or basketball game at home. I fear that my children will see more passion in me as I hate the referees or different things that may happen. I'm afraid my children might see more passion in that than they do for Christ. I'm afraid they might see more passion in, for me to defend social causes or to defend a president or to not defend a president, to defend po- other politicians or not to def- uh, defend other politicians more than they see my passion for Christ. Church, I fear, I fear we do two things that give us a false sense of hope. And I pray for you, my prayers for you, my prayers for me, that we run away from these things. First, I think we lean too heavily on past experiences. We say, well, I walked an aisle, or I prayed a prayer, or somebody said one time that I was a spiritual person, or I taught a Sunday school class, or I taught a a missional community group, or, you know, whatever it may be, we lean way too heavily on past, I cried one time in a service, or I cry every time in a service. You know, you've got to be a wimp if you do something like that, but um, I cry every time in a service. Check. I do that, so pretty much. But, um, but we lean way too heavily on past experiences as it determines trying to have, trying to have genuineness or, 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 or real, realness in our faith. And we forget our present responsibility to Christ. We do those two things, friends. And we can go a long time missing the mark. Our present responsibility to let our light shine before men. That they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Our present responsibility to surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. So that he may work in our lives to make us more into the image of Christ. 
There is a fine line between doing spiritual things and being saved through the Spirit of God. This is why another reason, reason 1152, that we should always be on guard. That we should always be, have our nose in the Bible. Have our nose in the Bible. Because the only way to definitively know that we are definitively following God in the way that he is objectively described is to read it, know it, understand it, love it, soak it in, memorize it, regurgitate it, all of those things. Don't lean too heavily on an experience or the past or anything of that nature in trying to determine if your faith today is genuine. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Follow Him. Trust and rely in the power of the Holy Spirit. Give Him your burdens. Give Him your good. Because He makes good great. Or He shows you really how not good it was in the first place. Will you pray with me today? Father, you are so good. And Lord, in so many ways, we are so inept. But through the goodness of Christ Jesus, we are free to worship and to live for you. Lord, would you help us to not get caught up in religiosity? Would you help us to not get caught up in tradition? Would you help us not to allow vintageisms to control our thoughts and our minds? Would you let us to be controlled by Christ, led through the power of the Holy Spirit, because we are redeemed by the Father? Lord, we love you, we praise you, we give you today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.